you guys are here for a somewhat auspicious occasion. I think three times in my speaking ministry, I've done series before. Uh, right now, we're speaking on the motivational gifts from Romans 12, and we're in the fourth of that series. Of the few times that I've done preached through a series, one of them was this series about 15 years ago. So, since some of you haven't been here for all those, maybe we'll do a little bit of a recap. It's a good opportunity and kind of close to the middle of this series to talk about why we're talking about this and why it matters. Um, the premise is this. Let's, 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 let's flip over to Romans chapter 12 and read what we're talking about real quick. And then we can explain a little more. Romans chapter 12... Um, let's start in verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy Let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. That's what we're on this week. Or he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. And then I'm going to read the next few verses too. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not, rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep." So, I, I read those last few verses. Let's, let's, let me just give an explanation of what we're doing here. My premise is this, that these seven gifts are seven basic primary motivations. It may be that they're built into human personality, or maybe it's in the church, I don't know. But there are seven, like, the way I think of it is if you take the logos and cut it like a pie chart... There's a component of Jesus, the Logos, in each one of these gifts. Jesus is, in part, a prophet, a server, a teacher, an exhorter, a giver, a ruler, and a mercy-oriented person. He holds all those things. So the whole man, the whole man as God constitutes it, is composed, in a certain way of defining it, with these seven attributes. So what happens then is that God distributes these seven gifts into into people so that we can reconstitute the Logos within the church. So we need all of these parts in order to be whole, to have a... a so a way of thinking about this is that your motivation, you probably have a primary one and a secondary one, but your motivation, whichever of these you have, is like the glasses that you wear. It's how you see the world. It's not that, you know, we, we because they come from, from God, these are all good things. So we, we like all of them. We like, you know, truth orientations from the prophets and service orientations from ministers and knowledge orientations from teachers. All those things are good. But what we find that people are motivated. It's what moves them. It's why they get out of bed. It's why they do the things they do. It's why they see the things they see by one of these seven gifts. So if that's the case, and I know there's some some uh, assumptions built in there. But if that's the case, then what we should do is we should know what these are. I should know what my gift is, and I should know what your gift is, so that we can collaborate. It's a premise of this way of understanding the gifts that, that A, the church isn't complete without them, and B, a lot of where we miss each other in miscommunication and misunderstandings and interpersonal problems is because we're talking across different giftings. So, so one way of thinking about this, the, the kind of like extreme 
the easy to see extreme of this gifting is profits on one end and mercies on the other. And and that's notable that he starts and ends the list that way. But but these are kind of like opposite orientations because a prophet doesn't care how you feel about anything. It's not about you. It's about what's true. Whereas the mercy on the opposite end of the spectrum cares very much about you and how you feel about things. And it's secondary to his motivation of what the truth actually is. So you can see how these two things would pull in opposite directions. Well, if you keep them in tension in the church through fellowship and through love and through grace, they create a balance in the church. They're pulling on both sides of the church's ministries. And so when you put them together and you tie them together and they can cooperate and collaborate and see each other's points, then you can have a balanced church with a full ministry. You can create a whole logos within the church. But what will often happen is that people with those opposite gifts will will not understand each other or will accuse each other or will say, you don't care about X like I do, so you must be wrong. So the prophet says to the mercy guy, you just all you care about is people's feelings and you don't care about the truth. And the mercy guy says to the prophet guy, you don't care about people, all you care about is being right. And when that friction is allowed to foster, it causes separation and division. So the thing that God intends to hold us together, to make us balanced, proper, thorough uh, people together, is exactly what the source of friction and problems is when it's out of balance. Or when we don't understand who we're talking to. Let me explain it this way. When I say something, like right now I'm talking, but especially in interpersonal communication, if, if you and I sit down and have a conversation, the natural tendency for me, when I communicate, is I say X. When I say X, I know what I mean. And so I expect you to understand my words the way that I mean them. I assume, naturally, that everyone thinks like I do. So when I say X, I mean X. But when you have a different motivation, you'll hear my words, X, and you'll think, if I were saying that, what I would mean is, and your definition may be Y to my X. What you would mean when you said those words would be very different than what I mean when I say those words. And that's the source of so much misunderstanding and miscommunication in the church. We have different concepts and ideas and motivations, and so when we communicate to each other, we're at cross purposes. If I was, so like take that mercy prophet construct again. The mercy guy is listening to the prophet guy, and the prophet guy is saying whatever, and the mercy guy is saying, man, he must be really angry, because I would have to be just hot mad to talk to somebody that way. Well, that's not at all what the other guy's thinking. Or, or flip the tables, and the mercy guy's like, I think there's somebody in sin, and I just really am worried about him, and I'm worried about his heart, and I'm worried about if he understands. And the prophet guy's like, do you not care about sin? No, that's not the case. He's just, it's not what's coming out from his motivation. So all of this is why we want to zoom in on these gifts and say, A, what am I? Which of these? And, and it's not, um, I think there's different ways to assess this, right? Like you can go online and find a ministry test and take, answer some questions and it pops out, oh, you're this and you're that. That's good. It's a good place to start. I, w- I would encourage you to do that, actually. You should take some of those tests and see what they say, but don't take it at face value. Um, just start there. Say, okay, well, it says I'm a teacher. Uh, am I? Like, what, what does a teacher think like? How does, how, what does the motivation of a teacher look like in a person's life? How does that operate in the church? And do I sympathize with that? Do I think that's me? Uh, maybe not. Maybe I'm this, maybe that. So there's a place to start. But then also look at... Um, Try to get what I'm trying to get to as we examine these different gifts is what's what's at the very bottom of this kind of person? What do they really want? What are they really after? That's why we call it a motivational gift. So if we go over what we've gone over before already, the, we're on the fourth one here. We're on exhorter. So a prophet, his essential motivation is what's true. It's all he cares about. I just want to know what's true. Now, this doesn't mean that he's always right. It just means that his motivation is to know what's true. There are all kinds of things that can stumble up somebody with a prophet motivation. Pride, for instance, is a huge one. He can think that whatever he thinks is true and act like that's truth, and that can create a lot of problems, actually. There's some warnings for each of these kinds of 
of motivations that you have to put in in your life in check and understand different ways to balance yourself out and to to check and balance the way you think about things but whether he's right or wrong the prophet his ultimate like what's at the bottom of his the bowels of his self is like i want truth that's what matters to me a minister or server diakonos he he wants to see and meet needs he just likes to help people he likes to be there he gets fulfillment and motivation out of being the one that sees a, sees somebody's need and and helps with it that just that's what he that's what he wants to do it's where he feels happy and satisfied and fulfilled teachers want to know things like it's not ultimately about truth it's about knowledge and those are you know they run in the same vein but they're not the same thing so teachers they just like knowing things they're they're collectors of information they're they're um, they're full of theory and and th- and and thoughts and principles. That's the way that that's what makes them move and makes them tick. Today we're going to talk about exhorters. And exhorters is the first. Like those first three examples are are fairly concrete. You know, you can see the prophet all throughout the Old Testament, and kind of like you can develop a narrative around the prophet. And the minister's pretty self-explanatory, you know, helping things. And the teacher, you know, you kind of get that to communicate. Like like when, when we talked about the teacher, we talked about this principle that the church was founded by prophets and teachers. So the prophets are saying what we should do, and the teachers are explaining why we should do it. So the what and the why. Those ministries go together. So these why people are full of the, you know, they can, they've got lists of scriptures and lists of principles and they, they, they know the theory behind why we should be doing the things we should do or why we should think the things that we think. Or That's the teacher. Now here when we get into the exhorter, it's a little more subtle. Uh, not that exhorters are more subtle, but the gift itself is more subtle. The, this word, <coughs> exhort and exhortation, it's the word uh, parakaleo. And it's the root of that word is paraclete. Paraclete is the helper or, or the, the word for the Holy Spirit. That's known as the paraclete. So this is etymologically connected to the word that gets used for the comforter or the helper. And what it is... So let me... I looked up how this word is translated different times in the English. It's translated all these ways. It's translated comfort, encourage, entreat, appeal, plead, beseech, implore, beg, urge, and request. All of this word is translated in English with all of those adjectives. So it's it's this word of like... It's more than... It's more than just telling somebody something. It's like pleading. It's like uh, encouraging. It's not a rebuke, but it's not just an instruction. It's somewhere in between those two things. I mean, a rebuke has negative connotations. This doesn't necessarily exhort. It's used a lot of times, and it always means like trying to get people to do something. That like it's um, it's somewhere like a verbal encouragement, like. How do I get you to do this thing? That's why those words are used for it. Like beseech, urge, beg, entreat. Like, come on, guys, do this thing. That's the heart of a motivator. And, and what's at the, what's, uh, of an exhorter? What, what the motivation is about is growth. These are growth people. They want to see people spiritually grow. They want to, wherever these people are in their life, they're looking at everyone around them and saying, you could, you're here and you could get to there if you would do these steps. That's like crystallized. That's what an exhorter is. I see you. You're here. I know you want to be here. If you do A, B, C, and D, you could get there. Here's how you do it. That's who these people are. And you can see why that's such an important skill in the church to be able to move people from point A to point B. We need people in the body that can diagnose that and put together a program for how to get from here to there. This is a fantastic skill in the body. As we've looked at these different gifts, we've picked kind of like a, 
a token person for each one of these gifts that exemplifies this behavior in the scriptures. Um, and in this case, the person that we're going to look at as an example for the exhorter is the Apostle Paul. He's kind of the premier example of the exhorter type. And think about his life. Like, his whole life is this. It's, I see you people, I'm going to get you to here. Like, that's what, that's what he does in his whole ministry. Move people from here to there. It's all about spiritual growth. Whether that's out of the pagan world into Christianity, or with his churches who are f- struggling with X, Y, or Z. Here's the problem, here's the steps, here's the goal. Like, that's his whole ministry, what he's doing all over the place. So what I want to do is look at some of these, um, diagnose the strengths and weaknesses that come along with this, with this particular gift. And what we find when we do these analyses, when we look, some of it's subjective, so you don't have to take it all at face value. Um, you, can, you can examine these things for yourself. These are just, some of it's my opinion, some of it's scripture. But I've, I've, I've watched these gifts for a long time, and these are things that I see consistently within this type of person. What, what I'm hopeful for all of us, especially those of us who have been through this whole series, is that you begin exploring the people around you. You begin asking questions to people and to yourself. What is this person's motive? Like when you lay out this matrix of seven gifts, what would this person that I'm talking to's motivation be? Well, how would I figure that out? Well, listen to the key words that they use. Listen to what's important to them. Listen to how they... So how people see problems and what they determine the solutions are, are a good way to examine somebody's motivations. So you can do that by asking questions. Like within the church, you can meet somebody, a Christian, for the first time and say, well, what do you think, what do you think is the biggest problem in the church today? Now you'd think... Like I, 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 if somebody asked me that question, I'd say basically the same thing for 20 years. I would, I would always have kind of the same general answer. But that's because I think a certain way. I ask people this. I haven't done it in a while, but I used to ask people this question all the time. And it's amazing how varied the answers are. Because you'd think there'd be one big problem that everybody would be looking at. But it really is a reflection of the person, not the church, when you ask questions like this. Or... Um, Yeah, not just not just what's wrong, but how would you fix it? So sometimes that what's wrong can be influenced by culture. You know, like there are certain church groups that are very kind of like profit-oriented or certain church groups that are very evangelistic-oriented, and that can color some of people's own personality. But if you ask how would you fix that, you can kind of see where people's motivations are coming from. Like... Like, we just need to love people more, we need to listen to people more, or we need to tell people the truth, or we need to, to meet people's needs, or we need to, to, to create space for people to be able to live and move and breathe and do these things. All these things can flush out somebody's, somebody's motivation. So start in your inner circle. Start with people that you're close with and try to figure out, what's my husband? What's my wife? What's my best friend? What's my son? What's my daughter? Who, who, what are the motivations? If I lay this matrix of seven gifts across a person, which one is, are they likely? So start thinking that way when you meet people and talk to people and, and see if you can start figuring out who people are. Because this is a really important skill in the church for all the reasons we already, already described. Um, <clears throat> When we think of exhorters in the church, and, and all these words, in, including the, the ones that are translated exhort, there's, it's a really important ministry we find within the church to exhort, to encourage the church to grow. Because we're all here to grow, right? So my, the title of this message would be um, What Do You Want to Be? That's the motivation of an exhorter. He, he, he wants to help you be what you want to be. The thing that, like your ideal self, the, the person that you want to be, an exhorter is the kind of person that will help you get there. He'll, he'll be able to help you see and diagnose where you're at and how to get to the place where you want to be. Okay, so let's talk about some of these strengths and weaknesses Um, and then maybe we'll come back to some of this stuff. Strengths and weaknesses. So, number one, 
what we find is that 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 the weaknesses of most of these gifts are derived from the strengths. Usually, the strength out of balance or out of whack or out of some kind of kilter is what produces the weakness in any of these gifts. So, so we always find that the things that you're strongest about are the things that you're weakest about. Like the source of your weakness is your strength, and that's true in these gifts. So, when we analyze this, I'll I'll list a. A general strength about this this gifting of exhorter and and what the potential abuses of that strength are. So number one, these people exhorters are very personally involved in developing spiritual maturity in other people and groups. We see Paul doing this individually and corporately, and exhorters are in that capacity too. They're they're personally involved. Like it's not enough like. I'm sure that there are exhorters who write books, but what, a, what an exhorter really wants to do is be in the trenches with somebody. He wants to sit down face-to-face and talk about where are you at and where are you trying to get to and, how, and what's getting in the way. That's his real bread and butter. That's what he wants to be doing. Uh, so they're very personally involved in these, in these kind of projects with people. Paul's always talking about being with people and his desire to be present with them. He, I'm, I'm coming there. I want to come here. I want to go there. I want to be with you face to face. All these things are like they're kind of central to the way Paul writes his letters, especially is his desire to be in presence with people. And he talks about his ministry in terms of being present with people. Let's talk about the weakness of that. This desire to be personally involved is very time-consuming. And so, um, exhorters generally are the kind of people, if you ask somebody, are you the kind of person in your friend group that people want to share their problems with? That's probably an exhorter, like as an example. They, Because they have a, an eye for those kinds of issues in people's life, and because they have an ear to people to listen to their problems... They spend a lot of time doing this, and that time spent can sometimes be ill-spent. What I mean by that is that it can sometimes be to the detriment of important relationships in their life, that they meet somebody and they spend six hours talking to them about their woes or their problems or how to succeed with what they're trying to do. Meanwhile, their wife and children are sitting at home with cold supper trying to figure out where, where Pop's at. This, this prioritization of time can be a real difficulty for exhorters because they want to be so personally involved. Uh, it's a danger for family life. In fact, I think that in large part, Paul's exhortations towards singleness and celibacy are due in no small part to his understanding of the amount of time that's required to do ministry the way that he does it. Like this carelessness that a single person has for the kingdom and for ministry is what Paul's encouraging people to consider because he knows to do things the way he's doing them, you don't have time for those kinds of relationships. Okay, the second strength. Exhorters have a real capacity to see root problems. So you may go to an exhorter and you're struggling with these manifestations, but they're typically very good at seeing past the symptom at the root problem. They're good at getting at the bottom of things. Well, that's happening because this. And, and they'll... Um, because of that reason, they're very effective at evaluating spiritual maturity. They can see past kind of the, the surface stuff to what's going on at the center of a person. They like to search out what's getting in the way and, and hindering the lives of people who are not growing and encourage them to grow and to develop the necessary disciplines and the necessary character to be what God wants them to be. If you look in, in Paul's address to the Corinthians, he, he rebukes them for their spiritual immaturity. He says, when I expected to be able to give you meat, you're still acting like babes. I wanted to come to you as spiritual, but you're yet carnal. Like these descriptions of where people are really at is something that Paul's doing in his ministry.
Okay, so they see root problems and they're they're effective at evaluating people's spiritual maturity. But the problem is, if they're not practicing careful listening skills, they can be very prone to jumping to conclusions and making assumptions. See, I think that one one kind of like quick sentence summary of an exhorter is that they're they're excellent people readers. They understand people well. Like they read people like teachers read books. Like they they they're they're very astute at understanding people and motivations and personalities. And because the way that they do that is that they develop kind of like this mental Rolodex of people and situations. And what they do is when they sit and talk with people, they're analyzing what is this like? Who is this like? Who do I know that's done this before? Or where have I seen this kind of behavior before? Because they're, they're, another, another way to describe exhorters, and it'll actually, this will be redundant when I bring it up again, is that they're super practical. Like very, very nitty-gritty, hands-in-the-dirt practical people. And, and so as they go through life and as they make relationships and as they work with people and see people grow, they make these kinds of associations. Well, this was happening because of that. That's their whole gig. So when they sit down with somebody and they say, this is happening, they'll jump to the conclusion, well, it's because of that. And, and the tendency for them to be is to rely on that experiences that they've had and that mental Rolodex that they have, and it'll cause them to not listen to all the details. They jump to this conclusion. And they might be missing things. I've seen this happen in exhorters' lives before. They think this is like that, but they didn't get all the details. They didn't listen thoroughly. They didn't listen well. They wanted to jump right into, here's how we do to fix it. This is like that. Here's what you do to fix it. So-and-so had the same problem. He did X, Y, and Z, and now this is the result. But there might be details in this environment or this situation or this person or the relationships or whatever's going on in the background that if the exhorter doesn't listen and hear the whole matter out, he can jump to that conclusion and make a mess of things. It can be a misuse of his gift. And it'd be good for exhorters to remember, he that answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame unto him. you gotta, you got to hear the whole thing. Put the whole picture together before you jump to conclusions. The third strength for exhorters is that they are methodological. Uh, they're really good at setting up these action steps. Like, do this. Okay, so here's the problem in your life. Do this, and then do this, and then do that. Here's the three steps, or seven steps, or six steps, or 12 steps to getting better at whatever you're trying to do. That's their gig. They like doing that. Um, you see this. Paul uses both steps and lists often as rhetorical devices in his writings. But the, the problem with this like methodological approach is that, okay, there's a few of them. One is that you have to be sure that the recipient has the same goal as the exhorter. Like sometimes an exhorter knows what's best for somebody and they're like, okay, here's what you need to do to get to there, to be successful or to be whatever you are trying to be. But the person they're talking to may not have that goal established. So they're trying to get some, they're trying to get someone somewhere that they don't want to go yet or at all. And, and it requires, the exhorter has to stop long enough and take enough time to say, is this what you want? Okay, now I'll help you get there. You have to make sure that you understand the person's goals that you're talking to, not just preset their goals for them because you know what's best for them. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but in either case, it won't work if that person that you're talking to doesn't have the same goal that you're talking about. So that's one potential misuse. Another is that exhorters can take it personally when people don't appreciate their methodology. Like, I gave you four steps to do this and you're not listening to me and it can become very frustrating for the exhorter when people won't listen to his good sound counsel. Um, <clears throat> that can create relational friction when when the exhorter doesn't feel like people are listening to his because this is the, this is like an important thing to him it's like I took the time to work, listen to your situation to work through this stuff with you and to develop a, a way to move forward and you're not doing it and it can be very grating on the person on the exhorter on the opposite end of the spectrum 
when things do work, uh, an exhorter um, can have a tendency to see himself as the key to success. Like, it's a kind of pride. Like, he sees himself and his ministry in that person's life as the reason that they were able to succeed and overinflate his own value in people's lives. Pride's a problem for everybody. This is just how it manifests in an exhorter. Uh, lastly, in regards to this methodological approach, is that there's a potential for exhorters to be content with conformity instead of actual growth. Like, you give them four steps to overcome pornography, and they're doing the steps, but they haven't really overcome. Like, that's a real problem that exhorters, because they believe in the method, because they believe in the steps, people can go through the steps and not really be growing. It can be false growth. Okay, the fourth uh, strength of, of um, exhorters is that they are almost eternal, perpetual optimists. They really, they really, because they care very much about people and they're very practically oriented, they just always think that they can help somebody. They, they always think that I, if, if you just listen to me, I can help you get over this. Like, I, I can, there's almost nothing that they can't overcome. And, and that's good. It's important. It's an important attribute for people that are in that ministry to have hope, right? Like, you have to be hopeful or you wouldn't, you wouldn't bother with the, with the work. <clears throat> um, it's more than optimism, though. I'm just speaking from very subjective, anecdotal experience. The exhorters I've been close to are not just optimistic. They're, like, cheesy. Like, they're... Um, if, you, if you listen to a self-help guru, I almost guarantee you he's an exhorter. If you, are, if you hear somebody in a big crowd of people, and they come out clapping... And they say, how is everybody? And they go, good. And they say, come on, everybody. Do better than that. I almost guarantee you that's an exhorter. <laughs> They're that kind of person. They're just like this bubbly, super confident, very gregarious, out front kind of people. And it's winsome. Like, people are drawn to that. And that's, I think, I don't know all of, but I just anecdotally again, I think that their ability to read people allows them to kind of project what they think people want to hear. It's not disingenuous. It's just a form of communication. It's just that they, they know how to get people energized. or mo They're exhorting people to a certain disposition. They're encouraging people to think a certain way. So that's this optimism. <clears throat> um, I'm guessing you can predict what some of the fallout from that is that that uh, you know like that same kind of bubbly gregarious optimistic thing it also when you watch exhorters teach they're they use a lot of gesturing they'll use props they'll get people to clap along they'll, they're very like this warm, engaging, like two-way, uh, an exhorter who's good at what he's doing, even if he's speaking in a group, will make it feel like it's a two-way communication. So, so he'll do whatever it takes. Illustrations, stories, all that stuff is in the tool bag of an exhorter. To a minor degree, like we don't know how Paul communicated in person, but he does use one church to encourage another church. Look at what's happening here. You should do that. Or consider this, these people or what's going on here. Or even like in the collection for the famine in Jerusalem, your needs are going to supply for them. And then their needs will, their, their excess will supply when you have needs like this. Using example and story and all these tools are a way of making comparisons and showing people why they should do the things that they should do. The problems with this is that um, this kind of like bubbly, positive forward approach, it can be a little daunting for people who don't have that disposition. 
like that always sunny, always rosy look at, at the world, it can be a little daunting for people that don't natively act that way or see the world that way. It can be a little bit off-putting, uh, ironically. It also, it also, the exhorter wants to be practical. And so what he'll often do is say, if I could do it, or if Joe could do it, or if Sarah could do it, you can too. And that, if I can, you can, it, it doesn't always match the situation. Um, it's trying to draw those comparisons, kind of like the weakness we talked about earlier. It's trying to draw comparisons, and, and the exhorter intends that to be encouraging. Like, he intends it to be hopeful. But it can be, ironically, sometimes disappointing or discouraging when the person who's there is like, well, I'm not Sarah, or I'm not you. I'm not, this situation's different. And that feeling of individuality can kind of be lost when you're on the receiving end of an exhorter's counsel. Um, the desire to be positive and forward-thinking can sometimes leave an exhorter to leave off of tasks that are not being fruitful and go forward and find somebody else to work with. It, it can kind of be... Like, there's a tendency for exhorters to drop people. Like, there's some kind of uh, insinuation or, or explicit communication that I told you what to do and you're not doing it, so I'm going to move on. Like, I guess you don't want my help. I'll go find somebody who does. That can, that can be communicated. It's not usually that crass, but it, it can be communicated to people when you feel like, a, like, I'm not doing what you say, so you're on to somebody else. That's a, that's a potential problem here with this ministry. <clears throat> a strength of, the fifth strength of exhorters is that they, they're very good at turning problems into positives. Um, mature exhorters, exhorters especially, they've learned that through life and experience that God leans into people who want to grow. Like there's, this is kind of an undergirding confidence of exhorters in the church. They, they have experienced in their own life and in people around them that where things are difficult and people lean into the problem and want to work to find solutions, that that's where God's grace is. And so it creates this kind of, like the positivity isn't just fluff. They really believe that that grace abounds, like God wants to work with people in difficult situations. So they don't run away from difficulty. And this is really a beautiful thing about exhorters. They're, they, they're, they're happy to find somebody who's at the bottom and help them work their way out. They don't run away from conflict or difficulty or really bad problems. They really want to be in the thick of things because they have an undergirding confidence that if you're willing to work with God, God is absolutely willing to work with you. And he'll pour in to the extent that you're willing to, to, to desire righteousness and pursue it. And so this makes a very hopeful out, uh, outlook for exhorters. He's, he's not daunted... Um, or dissuade by difficulties. In, instead, he actually sees them as opportunities to see God work. If you consider Paul's writings himself, he, he uses these expressions that he glories in tribulations. And, and when he's listing his credentials, he uses the hardest things in his life. He uses persecutions, shipwrecks, all these horrible things that happen in his life are what he puts front as his as his recommendation, as his credentials for why people should listen to him. So this, this notion of seeing grace through difficulty is a, is a cardinal virtue for, for exhorters. On the other hand, the weakness of this, turning problems into positives, is that an exhorter can... There's a tendency within this gifting to really see people as projects instead of individuals. And, and in the crassest form of this, like an exhorter can get to the place where he's notching his belt, like he figured out the problem. And it's really about working out the, the system instead of the individuals. And that, that people pick up on that. And so nobody likes to feel like a project. No, nobody likes to feel like 
you're only here because you're trying to get me somewhere so that you can feel like you know you know the answer and that that leaves people feeling really almost used and 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 it's not just you know in the ministry end it's also that the people that are close to exhorters can feel like they're perpetually being worked on like we can't ever just be cool. Like you always trying to get me to do something. And that for the friends and family of exhorters, they can really get wore out of this. I'm tired of the steps. I'm tired. Can't we just sit and have supper? Like, I don't want to do anything. I just want to like, can we just be friends? Or do you got to tell me six things that you think are wrong with me today? Like, can we just chill with that? I don't, I don't want to be a project today. Like that can be how an exhorter can leave people feeling if he's not cautious about, about his relationships. And to really enjoy people, not just process. Um, the sixth attribute of, of exhorters is that they, they, they have a very high value for transparency and openness. I think this is derived from the fact that exhorters in the church, they know that a clear conscience is almost always step one into some kind of recovery or overcoming, is that you have to start with a clear conscience. That means, you know, repenting or confessing or whatever. Like, dealing with sin and getting your conscience clear is where you have to start any attempt to grow spiritually. And so, so because this is kind of like a a basic principle to an exhorter, he's always doing this. Like, they, um, it's very important that people are transparent and open and frank and honest. They, um, they develop habits in their own life and try to encourage people around them not to keep stuff buried and not to keep stuff in. This is great, but it can lead to kind of oversharing. It can lead to, you know, wanting to tell your deepest, darkest of people you just met. And that's not always the right thing to do. Um, It can also lead to, like, almost almost crass or brazen kind of way of talking about things. Like, there's that that tendency to be oversharing can almost make them sound like they're taking sin lightly. Like, I had this problem too, here's what I was doing, and here's how bad it was, and and it almost can become, it can almost sound flippant. Because for the exhorter sharing that, it's not really, it's not usually coming from a place of like repentance, it's usually coming from a retrospective analysis. It's usually coming from, a, here's a problem that I had in my life, here's how bad it was, here's what it looked like, and here's the steps I did to get over it. And when it's communicated that way, sometimes it can sound flippant or careless. Um, yeah. They, they also, in this transparency mode, you know, they, they really, um, they're pretty good at empathy. Paul says, I've become all things to all people that I might win some. And I think the ability to see who people are and to, to kind of like fit in that category, to fit with those people, to fit in that mold, like this hyper-practical approach to ministry means I want to, I want to be like you. I want to be where you are. I want to reflect how you are in the world so that you'll listen to me. And that that kind of condescension is it's an essential category. Like you have to be able to do that to do this ministry well. But it can it can leave um if it's not balanced with like personal standards and personal integrity and 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 like individual commitments to righteousness and like here's where my lines are and I'm not going to do that. Like if you if you hear some some evangelical guy trying to set up Bible studies at at three o'clock in the morning at the bar when people are drunk, like that's an exhorter. Like trying to get into the depths of where people are at. Like you might want you might want to tell the exhorter let's maybe not go where the sin is. Let's, let, maybe we could talk with them outside of the bar. Maybe we should not like make them feel comfortable in their sin. They're so eager to connect with people that they'll step over lines that they maybe shouldn't. 
The seventh uh, attribute of an exhorter is that they'll use experience to understand life principles. They're, they're highly cause and effect oriented in very practical ways. In this and several other ways, the exhorter is kind of the anti-teacher. Like, we think of teachers as knowledge-based and principle-based, like, like, like high-order principle-based. The, the exhorter is, like, down-in-the-dirt principle-based, like cause-and-effect principle-based. Like, if you do this, then this happens. That kind of principle is what matters to, to, the, to the exhorter. We find that these are balancing skills, just like we talked about the prophet and the mercy. There's another balancing set that's the, that's the exhorter and the teacher. So the teacher is all about knowledge. What should we believe about something? What should we think about something? How should we approach a given issue? That's the teacher's domain. The exhorter's domain is how to take that stuff and put it right into somebody's life, like walking out in shoe leather, like super practically, here's how you do it. Uh, okay, so, so if you want a discourse on marriage and what it means in eternity and why God set up the institution of marriage, talk to a teacher. He'll talk to you for four hours about it, and you probably won't care about three hours of it. If you want to know how to have a good marriage, talk to the exhorter. And he'll tell you, here's what's getting in the way of your marriage. Here's why you're not communicating well. Here's the things that you're doing that are stepping on people's toes. Here's the practical things that are getting in the way of you having a good marriage. These are balancing ministries. Academic and theoretical means almost nothing to an exhorter. He just cares whether or not it works. The negative of that is that he can be doctrinally weak or fragile. Uh, truths can be framed out of balance because of the efficacy, because I, because this will work in this situation. It can get hyperinflated or overemphasized, and and it can miss some some important truths for the sake of emphasis. They. Exhorters have a tendency to avoid doctrine or theological things and only care about what works. They, if you're an exhorter, you should, you should try to be friends with teachers and vice versa if you want to have balance. The eighth attribute of exhorters is that they are good at creating urgency to act. What they'll do is they'll set up these steps and... They can diagnose, here's where you're at, and here's what you need to do, and if you don't, here's where it's going to go. Like this, this, like, this way of like, exhorting, like compelling you to want to act. That's the essence. And so they're good at creating a sense of urgency. This can come through several different ways. You know, it can come through talking about the glory of God or, or potential pitfalls. Like if you don't, here's where we're going to end up. Or if you do, here's what you could here's what you could be or what you could access or what you could have in Christ. All these are, are, are tools that the exhorter uses to encourage people. Um, a potential pitfall of this, though, of this creating urgency is that sometimes exhorters build these like frameworks for people without respect to time. And what I mean by that is that, you know, maybe I have five steps to a better marriage for you but but these steps could take you a year to work through or to or certainly to master and and the urgency about the need is what gets communicated and the time and discipline don't always get communicated and what that can leave is people feeling frustrated like i'm doing what you said and it's not working and there wasn't a front end discussion about difficulty or time or love because the exhorter is all about encouraging like just do it man just do it just do it just do it and it can leave off kind of like the cost counting or 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 dealing with how difficult some of these endeavors can be to do or how hard it is to master some of these skills that the exhorter knows this person needs and so it can create this kind of feeling of i tried that and it didn't work in people if, if the exhorter isn't careful to communicate those things. And then, <clears throat> a 
lastly, uh, exhorters almost always prefer face-to-face interactions. Because they're people readers, they really want, like, facial expressions and tone and body language are 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 really important cues to exhorters because they're people readers. And that's part of the text of a person is the way that they move or the tone that they use or, you know, that the facial expression they give. All of this is a part of communicating for exhorters and they do it naturally and intuitively. And they they'll so they'll always want to be face to face to do this stuff. Uh, I I am I am not this way. I, I I've had friends who were really strong exhorters in the past and they're always calling me on the phone I'm like man just send me a text I don't I don't want to talk to you like I'll talk to you but I don't want to talk just send me a text or an email or whatever it's actually a difficulty in my ministry I I, I'm communicated by a lot of people and I don't I don't actually prefer face-to-face like I do with my friends or people I'm close to but I'm very happy to communicate with email with strangers or other people it's just a weakness that I have as a teacher um, that I that doesn't it's not high on my priority list. It doesn't motivate me to see people. And exhorters want to sit down. They want to be across the table. And they want to, you know, they want that very visceral form of communication. And that's good. That's that's better for what they're trying to do. Uh, there again, you know, you see Paul talking about this all the time in his letters when we're face-to-face or I'm coming to you or all these things. He, and he uses personal conferences, you know, Paul's meeting with people even in prison in Rome. You know, he has a conference with the apostles. He sits down with Peter. Like these face-to-face encounters are kind of epoch moments in Paul's ministry. <clears throat> so those are kind of like, that's a, a, a general analysis of these gifts we haven't been focusing on all of them. These verses after this listing of gifts, I think, you know, we've talked about a few. This is a set of seven. And it's kind of like a, I don't know how to feel about it. There's something to it, I think, but it's, I don't want to put too much value on it. But I think that you can find like kind of a Bible code about sevens. Like it's interesting the things that all get put together in sevens. I, I know that's a little speculative, but, but, when you analyze sets of seven, they kind of run in, in, in categories together. So, so like in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter six, there are six things, yea, seven, which the Lord hates. And I, my own personal theory is that those seven things that are seven warnings that correspond to these seven personalities Again, I fully recognize the stretch that that makes. I'm not trying to say that's the ultimate hermeneutic for those things. But it is an interesting analysis. And similarly, and we'll look at that here, but uh, maybe we'll do that now. Proverbs 6 says, um, I have it written down here. You don't necessarily need to turn there. Uh, the, the, the thing that would correspond with this fourth gift is a heart that divides wicked imaginations. And that sounds a little weird at first, but these... What I know from being with exhorters is that this propensity to kind of spin out theories, it, 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 when it's not ruled by hope and love, genuine charity, it can create kind of monsters of people. It, it, it can make theories about people that are very uncharitable. And it has to be, the way people use this gift has to be controlled by hope and by charity and by, by being informed, by not jumping to assumptions. And I think this warning from God in Proverbs is about jumping to assumptions, about imagining things that are not there. Okay, so that's one set of things. The other thing is that these lists of verses after this list of gifts in Romans 12, um, I, I have a theory they correspond with the gifts themselves. So they're kind of like admonitions for these gifts. So so, you know, this list of gifts ends um, in verse 8. And then in verse 9, it says, Let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. So I think that's a admonition for the prophet. Be kindly affectioned one another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. That's... Uh, that's for the 
the server. Teacher, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I don't, I'm not going to go back and justify that, but the one for this would be rejoicing in hope. This is what the, the exhortation for the exhorter would be. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Go on to read them. So the next one would be distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. That would correspond with the giver. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. And then, I think that's a a parenthetical to that one. And then the uh, ruler would be rejoice, I'm sorry, that was the ruler. And this one, rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep is is for the mercy. So going back up, Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But let's let's examine these three for in the case of the exhorter. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and continuing instant in prayer. I, I think there's a way to see this, that those are like three general encouragements to people with this gift of exhorting. Be, be patient in hope. I mean, rejoicing in hope. We've talked several times already about how hope is like... This, the hope is what drives, it's like the fuel for the engine of exhortation. Like, I believe that you can grow. I believe that this can be overcome. I'm hopeful about you that you can be what God wants you to be. This hope is like, it's, it really is like the fuel of this motivation. And it's something that, you know, it's, it can, you can lose hope. You can lose hope for people. You can lose hope for situations. You can lose hope for, for, for groups of people. That, and I think that this is God encouraging exhorters to say, don't lose hold of that hope. That's what will keep you going. You've got to keep hoping for people. Especially when an exhorter invests a lot of time and energy and heart and passion into somebody and they fail, it's very disheartening. And I can say that of the exhorters that I've known very closely, these kinds of failures, personally and for other people they're working with, can really spin them into a cycle of depression. Like, this doesn't work. Nobody's going to get out. It just, there's no hope. Like, they, that hopelessness is like death and defeat to an exhorter. And then patient in tribulation like when things are difficult you have to keep going you have to keep moving forward and lastly continuing instant in prayer these process oriented exhorters that see steps and want to see people move forward this logical methodological approach to self-improvement and spiritual growth needs to be conditioned with the supernatural grace of God and prayer. Like, it can't just be self-help. It can't just be 12 steps to a perfect life. There has to be grace and God infused in this methodology, or it's, or it's only going to be Gnosticism. It's only going to be self-help guru. It's only going to be man and will. And what we want in the church and all of our ministries is more than that. We want grace. We want we want to do as much as we can and God to meet us at the end of that, to bring us across the line. And so for our exhorters, I don't want you to forget to to incorporate prayer and grace and the supernatural into how people should grow and, and attain what, what God's wanting to do with them. Okay. Um, I think that's everything I have for exhorters. So, be on the lookout for exhorters. I will say this too. I we uh, I, I think we do have a few exhorters in Boston. I know of, I know if you. I'd be interested to hear what you think of who the exhorters in our midst might be. I think we even have one here in Bartlett. So, let's pray and we'll close out. And I'll let Hans come and finish the meeting. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are so glad for how you've made the body. Uh, we appreciate what you're doing in, in and through each of us. Father, we recognize the value and importance of every member of the body. I pray, Father, that you would um, 
protect us from thinking that some people are unimportant or some gifts are lesser. Uh, pray, Father, that you'd help us to see and appreciate every gift in the body, every member of the body, the same way that you do. We pray, Father, that we would recognize our own insufficiency and how narrow our own perspective and scope is and how much we need one another to be balanced and whole and healthy and successful as the church to create the kingdom of God in the middle of wherever we happen to be. We thank you, Father, for these um, guidance, these guiding scriptures that we find and how to see and perceive these things. We pray that you'd help us to see them accurately. Pray that you give us insight into ourselves and one another so that we can properly appreciate your gifts in the body. They are your gifts, Father, and they're beautiful. We, we, we're, we're grateful for every one of them. We love you, Father, and we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>